When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Soaked and Under podcast. I'm your host, Jared, and joining me tonight is Stephen. How are you, Stephen? Yeah, I'm good, Jared. Not too bad. Just uh, baking away nicely up here in Sydney. Bloody hot. Yeah, saw that. We've had thunderstorms and all sorts down here, so it's been a bit of a uh, complete opposite down here in Melbourne. But anyway, we'll, uh, we won't bore everyone tuning in about the weather. Tonight's podcast, over the international break, we're going to be doing some Tim Talk podcasts. So what are our Tim Talk podcasts? Well, it started off with me just interviewing people from different CSCs and different um, Celtic supporters from different social media pages. And I build it up to the point where it tends to be an international breaks and over the off-season we do a lot of these, just getting to know people who watch the show, people who are Celtic-minded and have that bit of a background in the club. So... What we've done the last few is more as a, of a get to know you to the Celtic Down Under podcasters. So tonight's Tim Talk is Stephen's one. So we're going to uh, go through that, get to know a bit more about Stephen, how he became a Celtic fan, and just probably go off on some tangents. So as I just said there, Stephen, how did you become a Celtic fan? Well, Probably, um, unlike a lot of people who support Celtic, it, it didn't come from my father. Um, my father was um, a Kilmarnock fan. Um, I was born and brought up in Ayrshire. My dad was from Kilmarnock, um, born and bred in the town. So he was he was a fan of the club and um, actually was on the books with Kilmarnock when he was younger. He didn't make it as a professional, but he, he was very passionate about Kilmarnock. But... My mum's side of the family were a, a huge, big Irish family from West Cork. And um, Celtic was something that was always just around the house. 
you know, without anybody really having to put it there, if you know what I mean. It was always a at the centre of everything we spoke about, even even though my dad wasn't wasn't a Celtic fan. And when I was really young, really a, a toddler, I, I can remember him taking me along to a few Kilmarnock games, and uh, probably early seventies to mid seventies sort of time. Uh, but I was always only interested in Celtic and. I started going along to Celtic games with my dad um, probably towards the late 70s. The very first game, the game that sort of triggered me as a Celtic fan was the, the 1980 European Cup quarter final against Real Madrid, uh, where we beat them 2-0 at home at Celtic Park. And, and after that, I was just hooked and um, probably started going regularly home and away on my own around about 1984 sort of time. Uh, and ever since that, I've been uh, I've been just a regular. It's been a, a part of my life, all the way up till I emigrated to Australia in two thousand and seven, um, and it's been a, a long distance relationship since then. Yeah, it's always fun uh, following the club from over here. Like I've said on numerous Tim talks and stuff, like me having been born and raised here with but with the family tie in. What following Celtic from over here, it was it's so much easier now than it used to be, but. Listen to what you were just saying. You're one of those Celtic fans that actually knows what Killy's home stadium looks like without plastic on it, without a plastic pitch. <laughs> there you yeah. go. I know. I know it very, very definitely. When I went, when I was going to, going to come out against my dad, it was a, it was an oval stadium, um, and it was just all terracing and one stand, very much like the bulk of, of Scottish grounds. And um, it was it, they had a really big support at that time. Um, and you know, I know a lot. Of, a lot of Celtic fans really dislike Kilmarnock and regard them as just like Rangers fans without the bus fare. But you know that I understand why people think that. But that wasn't really my experience. My experience was, you know, they were just a team that, that they just were very proud of their own town. The town's all gone to shit now. The, the industries have all left it, and I think that's probably a lot to do with the fact that of why the football club's so poorly supported now because uh, nobody's getting any money. But um, at, back at that time, they were getting full houses and selling out the ground. They actually won the league, uh, Kilmarnock, in, in 1965, uh, just before uh, the Lisbon Lions domination started. So, they, you know, by, by, by the time the, late, the early 70s came along, there was still a little bit of successful whiff about them. And they, they were always um, always one of the bigger teams in Scotland. So, um, yeah, it's got, it got any hell in a handcart now. Um, and, you know, there's hardly anyone goes to see them. I think everybody just goes up the road to Glasgow now. Yeah, just from my my history and what I heard about it all and everything, it was like they were decent in the 60s, as you said, before the Lions happened. And then off the back of the Lisbon Lions, there was a bit, little bit of chop and change. You know, and then you had like that they called the new firm, Aberdeen and Dundee United came in with Fergie up in Aberdeen and that sort of stuff. And can't remember the other guy who was at um yeah Jim McLean. I knew it was Jim something, I couldn't remember his last name, but mm. they come in and then it's just been Celtic Rangers nonstop pretty much for thirty plus years or something mm. like that. So yeah. yeah, it's um it's just strange. Like I like listening to these. That's what I like about these. I learn stuff myself, like hearing <laughs> about Killy being decent back then. I've heard it, but I never actually twigged on it. So hearing you you saying that is actually yeah, it's just triggered a memory and something I've been told by by people that I've met in the past as well. So it's great to great to hear. So I'm gonna ask you a bit of a question here because originally when I did these um the Tim talks, we were talking about Ange and as the manager, and then you know as 
We'd recently, the last batch, we'd recently changed Andrew Gorn at Tottenham. Brendan Rogers had come in. So it's been it's been a few months now. So since the change, I just want to know how do you look back on Andrew's time at the club? Like considering you're based over here in Australia, how do you look back on it? Yeah, look, I think you can't overstate how well Ange did at Celtic, you know, when you consider the absolute shambles he walked into um, with barely 11 first-team players available to him. And um, to take that to, you know, what was it, um, five trophies out of possible six in, in two seasons, it was just an incredible achievement. And he gave us some of the sort of more exciting brand of football that we've seen in the past, you know, three decades anyway. Um, it was it was just wonderful to watch. Gave us some great memories, and um, you know, signed some great players anyway in, in his first season anyway. So, I think being being down here, as you mentioned, it was it was great uh, because we were on the news all the time. You know, when we had a big win over Rangers, there was there was a, a highlight section on the Channel Nine News on the Sunday. So, and, and people were talking about Celtic the the strips. The jerseys started appearing in the shops more regularly. Um, you were getting onto the, the Australian press. People were talking about the club, and it, and it was just marvellous. And um, so, for that reason, I, I'm, I'm disappointed he's not there anymore. But you know, it's just a, a factor of being successful at Celtic. And when you when you are, whether you're a player or whether you're a manager, you're always going to be coveted by by the teams down in England. I'm surprised that they, they went to to Tottenham. For two reasons, one, I didn't think he would he would go to a club like Tottenham. I thought he would hold out for one of the bigger clubs than that. I know Tottenham are a big club, but I thought he would be holding out for a Liverpool or something. Um, and the second the second reason I was surprised because I didn't think a club like Tottenham would take him straight from Celtic. I thought he would have to. You know, they would be looking for him to go and do a, a couple of years at a team like I don't know Brighton or something or or one of the lower uh, EPL teams. So I was surprised. Uh, when he moved to Tottenham, but um, you know, I was a bit annoyed at the time and a bit upset at the time. But you know, time's a healer, um, and you can only look back with fondness on his time at the club. Um, and hopefully, you know, some people down here in Australia will keep a little bit of their uh, their heart for Celtic uh, and keep an eye on our results moving forward. Yeah, just for me, it was like, as you said, it's great seeing more news coverage. It was in the papers. It was this is a great time to be an Australian-based Celtic fan. We had the Sydney Super Cup. He brought the boys down. He was the first time down here in eleven years or something like that. I think it was. So it was just a whole bunch of positives overall. The football yet yeah, speaks for itself. It just shows the sort of class manager that Andrews as well in terms of, you know, as you said, I thought as well. All the talk was if you want to go to the APL, he'd probably have to go to an Everton or a West Ham or something like that was the sort of bridging club that I thought he'd go to. And then he'd get his move to a top four, top six team, but he's gone straight into basically a top six team that had a down season last year in Tottenham and currently sitting top of the APL. So it just shows the the level of class that um for, that for me what there. what set what sets Ange aside from other managers it's not really his knowledge of football because you know he's not doing anything revolutionary here um there, there's plenty of people playing that kind of Ange ball sort of system with with inverted uh, fullbacks and all this sort of thing what sets him apart is his character he, he's just like a really special guy who knows how to say the right thing at the right time I mean he had the 
He had the Scottish media pack on post up here and, and watching him down in England. He seems to have the, the, the sort of EPL media pack on toast as well. He, uh, you know, you've seen his... Um, Seen a, a sort of Q and A thing he did a few weeks ago with with some Tottenham people, and there was a little special needs kid down at the in the front row, and he was trying to ask a question, and the, the presenter tried to wind the show up without him asking his question, but Ange said, "No, no, stop! You know we're not finishing until this kid gets to ask his question," and, and the boy did. He got a chance to ask his question and, and got a reply from it, and the look in this little kid's face would have would have brought tears to a glass eye, um, to be honest. So. That's the type of guy he is. And, um, you know, I, I don't think there's many more like him in the world of football. He's just a, a special, special, special guy. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing that that memory is going to live long in that kid's memory. And then it will also, in his mind and his life, and he grows up, he's a Tottenham fan, his kids will be Tottenham fans, He's everyone he knows will be about it. And it's just, that's just something that makes you love your club if, and stuff like that. And it's little things like that. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt Ange to spend that extra, what, two minutes on stage doing that. Or it doesn't hurt him to stop for a photo when he's out and about, when he's, as long as it's not when he's out with his wife and kids, but to stop for a quick photo or whatever. He's that sort of guy. He's like, he seems like your big affable uncle who, you know, you'd have a laugh with. You could sit around like, and Aussie's all things, you could sit around a fire pit in summer having a, having a couple of brews with him, just like enjoying life, having a laugh. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to say the wrong thing and have him growl at me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think he would take, uh, take any nonsense, put it that way. Yep. So off the back of Ange leaving with Brendan Rogers coming in, though, how do, are you finding the transition from Ange ball to the way Brendan has the team playing? Yeah, I think it was a, a little bit of a difficult transition, um, not made any easier by the fact we lost. Um, we lost a couple of really good players. And Jota and Aaron Moy over the summer. And um, we've also had been really unfortunate with injuries to some really key players at the start of the season. But I think, you know, Brendan Rodgers, his qualities as a manager are, are quite clear. He's certainly up there with the best of them. And um, what, what we're seeing now is that sort of starting to come to fruition. Um, I think tactically uh, and in-game, I think he's, 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 he's really good. Um, and he really knows how to how to make changes in game to, to influence the outcome. Um, he's a very good man manager, and um, I think that's evidenced by the sort of comments that Matt O'Reilly um, has been making. And certainly, Matt O'Reilly just looks like a completely different player this year. So he's obviously relishing playing under Brendan Rodgers. And you know, I've no, I've, I've got no doubt that, that Brendan Rodgers will get us the success that we need. Um, you know, there's some question marks about how how he was backed in the transfer window. Uh, but if he's backed properly, yeah, then I can see good times ahead for Celtic. We're starting to see, you know, the team are starting to understand what's required of them. Uh, certain players are, are picking up form again. And um, we saw a lot of evidence of that in the game against Kilmarnock at the weekend when everything just seems to be starting to click. Uh, and I think by the time we get to Christmas, you know, we'll be a, a well-oiled machine. So, it's been a bit of a difficult transition, which probably to be expected, but it, but it's it's getting there now. It's also you got to look at it and go. Well, Brendan was openly saying that he wasn't planning on on managing at the start, ready to go at the start of the season. He was going to have a bit of a break. So the fact is that he's had a, had a bit of time off. Probably wasn't out there going, okay, I've got my shopping list. I know I'm going to be at this club. These are the players I want. So he wasn't didn't have his ear to the ground per se in terms of being in the market. 
so he could hit the ground running, walk in, and like when Ange come in, he's like, I want Kyogo straight away. You didn't see Brendan come in with that. And then on top of it, you also had the change of playing style, but then Brendan also had to learn how our guys play, what are their strengths, what areas of the pitch they work best in, all while going through an, you know turnover, as you said, and an, an injury crisis. So it hasn't been an easy transition there, but I think as as we said on Monday's pot noodle that the um that was probably our first ninety minute full ninety minute performance against Killy at the weekend. So yeah, it was it's good to see. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So the next thing I want to talk on, because we're just talking about some recruitment and that. So before we dive into actual recruitment, I want to get your take, Stephen, on the club structure at present. Are you happy with the current setup? Like you have a really dominant manager comes in, doesn't bring his own staff. He keeps guys on who were there beforehand, like Ange did, like Brendan's done. Or do you think if we're going to keep our current staff, we also need to have a a director of football so that, because as we're saying, like Ange was two years, every manager, every player has a shelf life. There's going to be the churn and burn of players and managers leaving. So we need that someone overseeing what's going on. What's your thoughts? Keep it going how it is. Director of football set up eventually. Floor's yours. Yeah, like I, like I'm not I'm not unhappy with the way things are set up just now. Um, I think when a lot of people think about a director of football, you get this image of a sort of older, more experienced guy who's basically sitting up across the manager and sort of he's in control of the whole football operation, um, and and he's sort of appointing managers and he's making decisions based around recruitment and all that, but. I don't really think that's the, the, the type of director of football that I would like to see us having. And what we've got just now is a situation where you really do have a director of football in uh, Mark Lowell, who's really across a lot of the aspects that a director of football would be. And rather than that director of football being above the manager, the director of football for me should actually work for the manager um, and the manager should get a say in who the director of football is. Um, so I'm ha- quite happy with you know, the keeping the backroom staff, keeping the academy guys uh, stable. Um, and, you know, I, I'm quite happy to keep Mark Law around the place if he's successful and if he can show that he's he's good enough at the job. But I don't really see the need for, um, you know, bringing a sort of Martin O'Neill type figure uh, or someone like that or guys that have been mentioned or some guy like Ralph Ragnick or some some other bespectacled German or something. 
um, who's going to sit above the manager and sort of run the whole operation. I don't think that's the, that's the right way forward. You know, so so whether Mark Lowell's the right guy or not, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. That needs to be. We need to wait and see on that. I'm, I'm not really in a position to make a judgment on that at the moment. Um, I think I'd probably prefer it if it wasn't the current chairman's son. Uh, I think I'd probably reckon there was a slightly a little bit less nepotism behind his appointment. Uh, but I think that the current structure is probably okay. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. The current structure works for a club of our size with the finances we have and everything that's going on. You touched on it with Mark Lawwell in that role. That's what I think as well. But the ideal system for me is if you have a look at what Ajax has where they have their first team manager, the head of recruitment, and their director of football basically as like a three-man sort of group. And then also Dortmund does the same thing with Michael Zork as the director of football. And then they have a couple of other guys as well, the manager and like a recruitment guy, all at the same sort of level. I like that system because, as you're saying, the manager has to work with the director of football. The director of football has to work for the manager, make the academy run, feed those players through, while also having the recruitment guys reporting into him and the manager so they can go, this is the sort of player I want. Like Brendan comes in and goes, I want to... I want a six foot four defensive midfielder and a six foot six centre back. And I want the centre back to be left footed. Go find it, recruitment guy. Do that. And at the same time, the director of football can be doing the phones, working on other options like it like it works there. I think that sort of setup would work best for us. I don't really want, as you said, a Martin O'Neill type coming in or a Gordon Strachan coming in over the top. I think the way football's gone. I don't like using the term dinosaurs, but the game's moved on from a lot of, from a lot of the guys that were being linked in that. In terms of Martin O'Neill, great guy, did a lot for the club, but I just don't think it's him in that role. The perfect candidate, I thought, for us as a director of football, I used to say that was, um, oh, I just had a mental blank, not Lambert, what was the other bloke? He used, to appear, on 67, no, he used to appear on 67 Hail Hail, and he had... Used to be the um, manager at Dundee United, Jackie McNamara. That's the one. All right. He's the one I would right. love because he's done his agent stuff. He's been a manager. He used to play for the club. He's the sort of guy that I would, I think, would be ideal in a director of football sort of role. If you don't want that nepotism going on with Mark Lawl in the role, yeah. Look, I mean, Mark Lawl may well be the best recruitment guy or the best sort of. You know, head of recruitment guy that we could get. I, I don't know that, and it just happened. It's just a complete accident that he's Peter Lowell's son, um, and it's, it's it's pretty meaningless. But you know, somehow I find that a little bit hard to believe. Um, and you know, the problem with having a director of football is it, it's all very it's very good and well if like Savage moves on, um, and from a successful team, and you bring another manager into a successful team. But the problem is if things don't go well and the manager gets sacked. You know, the director of football then comes under fire for being part of the team that appoints the manager. So, do you know what I mean? So at some point then the director of football will be under pressure to get sacked, especially if you have two bad managers in a row. Pretty similar to what's happened over at Rangers. Now, they've been a shambles over the past couple of years, and I can't remember their director of football's name for the life of me. But he got bagged late on last year, and now they're sort of back to square one. Yeah, they got John Park basically doing it now because the other bloke's gone. But so 
Talking about the director of football thing, and this ties into the next question. So I want to ask you how you think our recruitment has been over the last 12, 18 months. So if we go back to July 2022, for instance, so that's around about the 15-month mark when Mark Lawwell arrived in as our head of first-team scouting and recruitment, so basically a director of football. These are all the players that he's brought in. Jens, Haksabanovic, Abelgard, Kobayashi, Alistair Johnson, Awada, O, Home, Tilio, Yang, Kwan, Lagerbelka, Palmer, Narosky, Phillips, Bernardo. That's the recruitment that's come in since he's been in the door in that. How do you feel the recruitment has been over the last 12, 18 months? Well, I mean, it's not really been good enough, has it? Um, if you look at the teams, that the, the starting lineup. Uh, in the last couple of games, particularly in the Champions League, there's really the only player that's been signed in that time period who's a rate who's a nailed-on starter is Alistair Johnson. Um, so that's one player out of that whole list of guys that you you rhymed off there, and it's not really good enough. Um, if you look at the guys who are really doing well for us just now, like Kyogo, like Maeda, like Hitati, like Cameron Carter Vickers. Um, and like Jota, who who left in the summer, these guys were all on board in Angie's first season. I know they got made permanent in the in the next year's transfer window, but you know that wasn't anything to do with Mark Lowell. But the state, the, the sort of mainstays of our team were all brought in in that first one or two transfer windows under Ange. And ever since Mark Lowell's appeared in the building, it's just been a collection of like cheaper transfers, and we've ended up now with basically a very bloated squad. And that's what happens when you go you play a numbers game. You know, you sign a, a high number of players at low value. You know, you might find a gem in there. Um, and you certainly, Palmer probably looks as if he, he's a very good player. We got Matt O'Reilly for, for pretty cheap. Um, so there's a couple that have, that have came good. But for every one of them, there's a Quan who, you know, you, nobody can, nobody, at this point, nobody can see him making the grade. Um, you've got guys like Abelgard who come in and then left. Um, you've got guys like Jens who come in and left. I know some of these guys were only on loan. Um, but we wasted a lot of money and wages on them. Um, so I don't think it's really been good enough. And I think, you know, people who were looking for rather than a numbers game and maybe signing nine players, I think we signed over the close season there, we should have been looking to sign maybe four or five players, but at higher value players who are more likely to hit the ground running. Now, not, nothing's ever guaranteed. You can go and spend £10 million on a player and he does his ACL in his first training session. That's just the risk of football, but you have to try. Uh, and I just don't think we've got that balance right at the moment. Yeah, 100% agree with you. Like, that's what we've said as well. Look, I would have loved it, say, if we had like 20, what we get for Jota, 25 million, 17 or 19 million of that came into our pockets. The rest went to Benfica. So, realistically, if you've got that plus the money that was already there, if you went out and spent in that Carter Vickers Jota range of six to 8 million range and got three players at that. And then you still brought in like Attilio. You brought in, if you wanted him, if you wanted to bring in, you know, um, Yang for his two and a half million, if you wanted to bring in a couple of other guys in those smaller ones, makes sense. Because for me, you get the guys, bring, bring them in to be actual starters, but then those smaller ones, they're the guys that you want to be behind the starters developing, nipping at their heels. So eventually you get to that production line that we've spoken about on the pod. So 
say you get to a point where, you know, Palmer's doing well, say he does amazing in the Champions League, gets himself a move in two years' time. You want it to be at the point where if Palmer's ready to move on and you're going to make 20, 30 million for him, and you've had Tilio open at his heels for a year, year and a half, challenging him, raising his standard, eventually he should be ready to step into that role and take it when Palmer moves. Then you just buy your replacement behind Tilio again and you go again. That's the ideal world for our model with our budget. But yeah, at the moment it's been hit and miss. Like all these little one and a half million players here and that, like, of that yeah, 15 good. players I rattled off there for Mark Law, and as you said, only one of them starts week in, week out. And Johnson, it's not like he was an unknown quantity because he was replacing another guy who was a, a right, starting right back that got to the final four in the World Cup in Juranovic. So it's not like He's the squad got he, remarkably better. Johnson's also got turning 25 this week, so... Um, he's not a young kid, so he didn't. He wasn't, you know, another one that wasn't part of that model where we sign players, you know, twenty to twenty-two uh, for for low money, try and develop them and move them on. But the problem we have is, and the problem with that model is, you've got guys there like like Kobayashi, for instance, who you know, I'm, I'm sure he's not a bad player. He's just not really hit the ground running at Celtic. But what do you do with him now? You know, he needs games. He needs to play for someone, and he's not going to get it at Celtic. He's not going to play. He's not going to get a game. Unless there's there's a really you know unless there's another centre back crisis, but you know we seem to be on the mend in that area. So we don't have a reserve team. We don't have anywhere for these guys to play regular minutes. So if I'm not out in loan, I'm struggling to see how they're going to develop. And that goes for the likes of Quan as well. If he's not going to get first team minutes, which he's not, then he's not going to get any minutes at all. Um, and I'm just not sure how these guys are going to develop into better players under those circumstances. It's okay having a winger on the bench, like guys like Tilio um, and Yang will get plenty of game time this year because the wing positions, all we can always rotate the wing positions in and out, but centre-halves and central midfielders, it's very much more difficult to rotate those positions and, you know, these guys are just going to be struggling for game time and if you don't get them game time, they're not going to get better and you're not going to increase their value either, so... For that, if you continue to play this numbers game and just stockpile these types of players, you're just going to be left with them having to pay to get them off the wage bill in a couple of years' time. It's not like we're like a Chelsea or a Man City or whatever who, you know, are part of some sort of group. Like Chelsea, like have their partnership with um, some over in Holland or you've got the City group, so you've got a bunch of teams you can loan guys out to. Like the best loan returns I think we've had recently have been Aya when he went for that half season down down Achille. Ryan Christie when he's gone up for the year and a half to Aberdeen, he's come back looking like a machine. I look at it and go, Scales has gone on loan. He's doing well for us. He was a couple of days off being sold to Aberdeen. And then we had our injury crisis and he's established himself. So you know Aberdeen were looking for a centre-back. I'd almost add him, take Kobayashi on an 18-month loan. What's the worst that can happen? Get him up there. Get him playing regular football in Scotland at the stadiums he's going to be playing at for us in our league. And if it doesn't work for him by the end of that, well, then, you know, all bets are off, basically. Yeah, that, that's very true. I mean, certainly these guys, we need to be looking at some sort of loan, loan deals for them. So speaking about... You know, we're just talking about loan deals and that. Which current players at the club do you think will be moving on in the next six to 12 months? 
Um, yeah, it's a difficult I've got to one. About eight to ten players, basically, because the squad's yeah, so bloated. So let's say what you, you think. Got, you got you got a bunch of guys there that aren't playing who who will be straight out the door. You know, you guys like like James McCarthy. Um, I think um, Edigucci's still on the books, isn't he? I think he'll be heading for the exit door. I think guys like Kobayashi will, um, will need to go on loan, or, or or if they can't get, if they don't want to go on loan, it will be need, need to be a permanent transfer out the door. Um, Mickey Mikey Johnson, you know, he only he seems to be getting added to the European bench, but he's not making the bench in domestic games, so. You know, he he's obviously not fancied either, so he'll probably be going. And then you've got guys like James McCarthy, who, I mean, God only knows why he's still there. I can only assume he's, he's quite happy to just take his money and, and um, you know, do whatever he's doing because he doesn't seem to be even pictured in any any training videos or anything like that. So, yeah, you, you would think he'd be heading for the door. Uh, Seagrass. He's the cameraman, Stephen, you know. He's, he's, got, he's the guy behind the camera doing it. That's the way he's got to earn his wage. Yeah, he must be the social, the social convener or something. He's organising a night so. Um, yeah, Benji Seagrest will, will obviously be going as well because he's he's a mile away from getting an opportunity. Um, I think he'd rather play an outfield player in goals than play Seagrest at the moment. So, um, I think he's definitely headed probably down down the hill, neck of the woods, if if rumours are to be believed. Yep. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. That's the that's the talk. Yeah, Segrist asked for it, asked to move Danny because he wants to be close to his missus. So, yeah, he'll probably end up down here, which then means we need to get a goalkeeper, which ties into our next one. What areas of the team do you think we need to strengthen? And goalkeeper would be one. But what else do you think? Yeah, I think goalkeeper definitely one. I think, yeah, you know, like most people, I think I'm a bit concerned about the left-back situation. Although Taylor's form has improved the last few weeks. Um, I still think he's he's short of what's required in Europe in Europe, the Champions League. And it would also don't have a backup left back at all, unless you count skills as your backup left back. And I'm, you know, I'm not convinced that's where we want to be either. You know, Bernard Bay's been a an unmitigated disaster of a signing. Um he just can't, you know, he can't get a run of form together. He looks very poor, his concentration looks very poor, his passing's all over the place. And he can't see me keep himself out of trouble off the pitch either, uh, which is also disappointing. So I can't see Bernabe being there for much longer either. So at that point of view, if Greg Taylor was to get injured, um, you know, I think he's away on international duty this week with Scotland. If he was to come back with a knock, then I think we'd be in a bit of trouble. Um, I think we'd probably have to play skills there because Bernabe just looks a mile short of, of where we need to be. 
Um, outside the left back, I wanted them to sign a, a number 10 as well. Now, I'll qualify that by saying Paulo Bernardo might be that player, um, but I still don't think we're well covered in that area. I think Hitati, his forum has, has improved. He played really well against Kilmarnock, uh, but he said in general terms a very poor start of the season. So we need to see more from him uh, and add to the fact that he would seem to be one of the more likely players to be moving on for a big money transfer, maybe next summer or the year after, you know, albeit he, he signed a new contract, which will increase his value. Um, so we, I think we still need to sign a number 10. Um, and, I, and I think we need to sign another striker because I don't I don't fancy O as a backup to Kyogo. Again, if Kyogo come back from international break with an injury, I think we'd be in trouble. I don't think O is the guy to be slotted in there to replace him. And I don't think in a domestic context, Maida is either. So I think that should have all been covered um, in the transfer window in the summer. Um, but I think that's something we're really going to have to address in January. Um, I think, aside from that, you know, the wide players, you need to really wait, wait and see how Palma does, how Tilio comes into the team and how he settles in to see how well we're fixed in, in that area. Um, we've not really replaced what Jota brought to the team, uh, but I hope Tilio is that guy, you know, a guy that, you know, the option, you can go inside or outside. Um, he's got a little bit of pace to burn the fullback um, and his delivery into the box is good and consistent uh, and he's also good to get on the score sheet. So I hope that Tilio can fill that hole, um, but, but that, that that remains to be seen. And if he doesn't, then I think we, I still think we need another, another wide player. I think we need another wide player anyway, but it's just going to depend on where they come from because... I look at it and go, a lot of our wide players are multi-positional. Like Tilio can play left, right, and he can play in the 10. Palmer can play left and in the 10. You've got Maeda plays anywhere across the front three. Like he can play as a striker. He plays right and left at the moment. You've got Forrest who's playing right and left. So you've got lots of options there. You've got a barter who plays on the right, but can also in a pinch in, in domestic at least play as a striker. So you've got plenty of options there. So it's like, okay, who's going to fill what role? Are we not signing that number 10 that you're wanting because we've got Tilio and Palmer who can jump in and play in there if need be? Are we not signing the striker because Maeda is the backup striker and then O's the third string striker? Because if you do that, you bring Maeda and you put other wingers in and you've got coverage. Could that be how we're playing it? You know, the doing stuff like that. That's what it looks like at the moment, but... I kind of rather the certain player positions that you need a specialist player in. Striker, like a specialist striker, give us a, I, I, I think we're missing Jackamacus this season. Honestly, there's been some games that teams are playing and parking on it. And O doesn't, O just looks like he just wants to run out and just, you know, battle everyone and play rugby rather than actually, you know, get himself into scoring positions the way Jack and Marcus used to get between the line and position himself and header it and one touch finishing. Like we might have that player. I don't know if that's him, but I think we're missing that. So I'd rather a specialist striker. But you know, we could do a lot worse than go up the road to Aberdeen and look at Duck or for someone like that or Miofsky up there because I've got a couple of decent strikers at Aberdeen who are better than what our third option is. In O, so I don't know. There's always options, and then someone in the comments later on will 
when this goes out or put, mention Lauren Shanklin. Someone always does. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's kind of annoys me a bit, though, is a little bit, is we are a bit snobbish about the Scottish game. Um, and over the past few years, we've turned, our, we've turned our nose up at some players who have gone on to be pretty good. I mean, you look at the likes of Aaron Hickey, um, who's now an EPL player, probably out of our price range. Now, we had him on our books as a youth player, um, but we also had a chance to sign him when he was at Hearts before he went to Italy, to, to Bologna. Uh, and we, it would have cost us probably about three or four million, which is probably a bit rich for a, for a Scottish Premier League player. But he was a good, he was and is a good player, and he's now a full international and a regular with an EPL team. So I think, you know, Shankland, I don't, I don't really fancy a shine in Shankland at all. But I think the question we need to be asking is he is he is he worse than O or is he better than O? You know, I, I don't think that there'd be much to choose between Shankland and O. Um and you know, I, I think, you know, with, with O this potentially disappearing for the Asian Cup, um, we, we certainly need another option in there. Now, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination recommending to be saying Lawrence Shankland. I think there's probably a million better players at better value elsewhere in Europe. And I did like the idea of uh, Sidney Van Hoydonk. Um, he looked a sort of Jack Amakis type player uh, yeah. when we were linked with him, but that didn't transpire. So, you know, I think there is, there's value to be had out there and there's definitely, you know, there's, we, there's definitely strikers to be had in our price bracket who would be better than all and closer and closer in ability level to what Kyogo is. Yeah, like the Van Hoydonk story is not disappearing. The guy up in... um. I think it was Bronby or something like that, the young striker up there, the Danish guy. That There was talk that that deal was agreed, ready to go for January. So let's just watch and see. But, yeah, as you said, there's plenty more options there. But if we're going to go back the way we just did and we're talking about Aaron Hickey and stuff like that, there's a couple others I'm going to mention. I think we could have done a lot worse than, like, Lyndon Dykes, I didn't, I didn't rate him at the time, but if you've got O and you've got what Lyndon Dykes is doing for Scotland and you've seen him doing his club thing, I don't think that would be a downgrade, <laughs> which back then I probably thought it would have been. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that's that's a little bit of a, a hot take there. But the other one, I always thought we needed that midfield enforcer, someone who could sit in the six and just batter people. And we've got, we've rotated through people. Abelgaard's come, been and gone. Juan's come in and done nothing. Awada's barely been sided. I thought someone who could come in. And I know his family ties are to the um the blue side of Glasgow, but I always thought if you could have got Lewis Ferguson, I, I rated him the whole time. I thought he would have been a great young Scottish player to bring through. But, you know, he's got the wrong last name and I think some areas of the stadium wouldn't have liked that signing, but I would have been all for it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would have been okay with signing Lewis Ferguson. I mean, no, no, he's, he's, his dad's an ex-Rangers player and all that, but, you know, you've got guys, guys throughout the history, some of our, some of our best players have been, have been former Rangers fans like Kenny Dalglish, you know, and guys like that, Scott Brown, I think, the Rangers fan back in the day. And, you know, Greg Taylor at the moment grew up one of them in their academy. Yeah, I think, and I think James Forrest as well um, was a Rangers fan when he was younger, but it really doesn't matter to me. And I, I think that's just a, that's a good example. You've raised up a player which just sort of turned their nose up because he was playing for Aberdeen. Um, and, it, you know, and somebody who probably, if we tried to sign him now, we probably couldn't afford them. Um, and these guys all go to Serie A. Now, it seems to be a very fashionable thing to do to move from Scotland to Serie A. 
Um, and the Italian teams obviously aren't turning their nose up at these types of players. And that league's clearly a higher standard than what we are playing in just now. So I think it's something we should never we should never turn our back on and we should always be we should always be in the market for the best Scottish talent. Hundred percent. Like I think he went for about three and a half million pound, if my memory's right. Yeah. So could have easily afforded that. And Josh Doig from Hibs was another one. He's doing yeah. really well over there. Um and another guy you could have got for a couple of million, but we you know we prefer to four, throw three or four million at guys like Burnaby. Um, you could certainly have got much better value from a Scottish player. Even looking within Scotland as well, like we mentioned early on about, like, uh, what's his name, Johnson being twenty five, and in the off season we're linked with Ryan Strain, a Strain international who can play right back, he can also play left back and as a right winger. Like he's been on fire so far this season, playing unbelievable at St Mirren, and I'm looking at that going. It wouldn't have been too much of a drop off. Like if you got him and Ralston as your backups there, I, you, I don't think you would have lost much when um, if Johnston was out or anything. You'd have still have two capable players. So things like that, there are quality. I'm I'm not saying to sign him. I'm just saying like within Scotland, there are players that do a job for us. But we'll we'll leave that topic there and we'll get into the uh, the Stephen special now. We've got four questions for you. This is this is the fun part. So, this now is not about the club. This is about you as a Celtic fan. So, in your whole lifetime as a Celtic fan, who would be your all-time favourite Celtic player and why? And I've got in brackets other than Larson because that one tends to come up quite regularly. So, who would it be? Yeah, look, I think um, most people from my era um, would probably say Paul McStay, um, who was just such a fantastic player, and certainly the sort of late 80s version of Paul McStay. Um, the centenary season of 87, 88 was, was, I think, was a peak, was his peak of his Celtic career, and he was just a, a marvellous player. But um, I've heard, you know, another a few of the other guys doing the, the, the Tim Talks have said Paul McStay, so I'm going to be a little bit different. I'm going to say um, the best player I've seen in a Celtic jersey has been Lubomir Moravchik. Um, just in terms of sheer raw ability um, for a guy who came into the club in his 30s uh, with his career probably on the on the slide a little bit. Certainly the, the Scottish press laughed him, laughed at the signing, uh, ridiculed him, um, but he turned out to be such a great player and a guy who's, who was well-known outside of Scotland, was regarded as, as a really good technical player and, and a brilliant player, a guy who'd had a, a long and, and good career in the Bundesliga, um, and and just some of the some of the technical ability he showed, the free kicks he scored, the shooting from range, his range of passing, um, was just all incredible. And I think the, the the couple of years or the few years that we enjoyed him at Celtic was just a great time to be around the club because you know a fantastic player. So you know in terms of technical ability, I think it's got to be Lubo for me. Was it Doctor Joe who signed him, or was it? Yeah, yeah, it was Joe Bengloss because he was a Slovakian. Like like uh, like Joe Engloss and um so he knew all about him. He knew and you know I remember, you know the, there's a very famous newspaper quote from the 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 now ridiculous Hugh Evans uh, when he was lambasting the club for signing this nobody from Slovakia when they could have signed John Spencer. Uh, I don't know. You probably won't even remember John Spencer, but John Spencer oh. was a, just a little quite a wee fat guy that used to play for Rangers. 
um, who went on to achieve the, the square root of nothing uh, in the game um, and not anywhere near the player level Mirachi was. And that sort of highlighted the sort of ignorance uh, in the Scottish media pack that they, they, they turned down on, looked down their nose at a player just because they hadn't heard of him. But Joe Bengloss had heard of him and he knew all about him and he knew exactly what he was getting. And I remember the first the first game he played against Rangers, um, I think it was 1997, I think, maybe around about that time anyway. And, um, you know, Rangers were in the ascendancy at that period of time. And we beat them 5-1 at Celtic Park. And, and Lubo Maravchik just absolutely ran the show. It was either his first or his second game for Celtic. And he just ran the show. He scored twice uh, and was just a head and shoulders above anyone else in the park. So just an absolutely fantastic player. And how great it would have been if we'd got him maybe seven or eight years previously. He was all up here as well, from what from mm-hmm. my saying. He was like... Yeah, he wasn't the fastest, but his brain was probably two or three steps ahead of everyone on the pitch, and he's just an um, unbelievable player. So, yeah, good call there. Yeah. Um, who would be your, your top five players that you've seen play for Celtic in your lifetime? This is basically like the equivalent. I'll call this like our, our Mount Rushmore sort of thing, but I'm giving you an extra player because you've just given your favourite, so that's an automatic. So who would be your other's? Make out your top five, or if you want to make it a five-a-side team, who would who'd be your top five? Okay, so obviously I've included in there uh, Paul McStay, who was, you know, I, as we mentioned before, was just a, a wonderful player and a, a you know fantastic midfield player. Uh, and I I was fortunate enough to see the best of Paul McStay um, through the late eighties when I was, I was going to the games home and away. Um, and as I mentioned before, the centenary season was it was just sublime. Um, one of the the, the best. The best one of the best passes I've ever seen in a game of football uh, was in the 1988 New Year fixture against Rangers, where he, he done a little pirouette in the middle of the park and he, he split the defence with one pass to send Chris Morris down the right, uh, and he squared the ball for McAvaney to score uh, and a two 0 win. And that was that was just uh, typical of the sort of football Paul McStay was producing at that time. He, he sort of struggled a bit later on by the fact that the, the whole club was on the slide in the early 90s. Uh, and he did get a couple of bad ankle injuries, but still a, an absolute club legend and a, and a fantastic player. Um, the next one I've gone for is... is it, and he lives in your neck of the woods as well. Yeah, that's right. He's down in the Shire. Yeah, I've, I've got a couple of mutual friends, so I'm, I'm still hopeful that, um, that I'll bump into Paul McStay one of these days. And um, I've got up here on the wall behind me one of these jerseys here is a, an original uh, centenary year. Uh, jersey that I've kept with me all these years, so I'm going to I'm going to try and get him to sign it if I ever if I ever get a chance. I was going to say if you met him, if I ever met him, I just want to give him a cuddle and say thanks for everything because he was my favourite growing up. But you want to get a yeah. jersey signed, then you got to get it framed. So I think you win. <laughs> so, so, so the next him? guy in the list, the next guy I've got in the list is a guy who played a lot of football next to Paul McStay, and that was John Collins, um, another absolutely submined footballer that we got from Hibs. Um, in the, the sort of uh, early 90s and um, just a wonderful player I had the chance to sign for Rangers but it was a my, my brother actually went to college down in Gala Shields uh, which is where John Collins is from so he knew the whole family were all massive Celtic fans even though he was playing with Hibs he was always it was a dream to play for Celtic so Celtic came calling Rangers tried to get him across there with a, with a, with a bribe of, of loads of cash but he turned them down to play for Celtic and um Although, you know, he never really got the trophy hall that his talent deserved because of the period of time he played at Celtic. 
but a great player and a great left foot. Scored a couple of cracking goals um, against Rangers at Ibrox, two, three kicks. One of them um, was in a game where we'd been locked out of Ibrox, um, like we are at the moment. Um, and when David Murray had locked us out because there was some damage to seats or something like that. But, you know, the real reason was he just wanted to sell all the seats to Rangers fans. So he used that as an excuse. Um, so there was no Celtic fans in the ground. Celtic fans from the time will remember, though, that that was a game where a, a plane flew overhead with a banner trailing behind it saying, Hail, hail, the Celts are here. And um, John Collins scored an absolutely fantastic free kick. The game finished one each, but um, uh, he scored another one in a 2 0 win, I think, the following season uh, when Paul McStay scored as well. So, um, great player, fantastic player, and um, he was definitely in the top five for me. So, the, th- the third one on the list is uh, was Brian McClare. Uh, Brian McClare was, nice. yeah, Chalky McClare, yeah. So, Brian McClare was a hero of mine when I was young, growing up during the 80s. And um, just a really good, intelligent football player. Didn't really grab the limelight much. Uh, played beside guys like um, he who we never speak of, uh, the man only known as Judas, um, who took a lot of the limelight away from him. But, you know, looking at looking through the lens of history, he was probably a better player than him. Um, and certainly, you know, he got, he got enough goals and he, he had enough assists and enough all-round to his game to be considered to be a really, really good player for us. And he got his move to Man United and went down there. And I think he was their first player to score more than 25 goals in a season for something like 30 years or something, something mad like that. So it's a big hero, big hero down in Manchester as well. Um, and I've been listening to um, his podcast recently. He's got a podcast called Life with Brian. Um, and he's a very interesting guy, really intelligent guy. He studied uh, a, a university degree while he was playing football, so not your average footballer. Uh, and he's got a lot of interesting things to say, even to this day, and still retains a real love of Celtic, still has a season ticket for Celtic uh, and goes there with his son. So loved watching Brian McClare, uh, love listening to him now. So excellent player. Yeah, his podcast is on the same podcast network that we're on the sport social podcast network. So you can find him on there. Life with Brian or whatever it was. Um, yeah, bloody good podcast. Have you seen the video though of him? Like it was like two and a half minutes straight of him just picking up the ball out of the back of the net and running back as his celebration. So he scores a goal, yeah. runs in there, picks up and just tucks under an arm and just runs back. There's like a yeah. there's like a video on YouTube somewhere and it's just two and a half minutes of that. It's just Hilarious. I had a good chuckle. He scored a, he scored a goal in a League Cup semi-final. Sorry, a League Cup final against Rangers. We actually ended up losing the game 3-2. But um, we were 2-0 down and we fought our way back into the game. And it was a free kick. I don't know if you've seen it. Tommy Burns um, took the free kick. He was just outside the box. And rather than shooting, he just lobbed it. He just lifted it with his foot over the wall. And Brian McClare was behind the wall or just beside the wall, you know, keeping himself onside. Burns lobbed it over and he just caught it on the volley and, and smacked it into the net from there. And yeah, he did as usual, just tucked the ball under his arm and ran back to the centre circle. So yeah, really a really good goal. But that, that was typical of him, the sort of understated way he celebrated goals. Yeah, I love that. Who's your fourth? So fourth on the list, um, I've got, um, this one might surprise a few people, but it was uh, Charlie Nicholas. Um, now, when I'm talking about Charlie Nicholas, I'm talking about the 1981 version of Charlie Nicholas. Uh, and Charlie Nicholas, for me, was my first footballing hero. Because, um, you know, at that time, I was, what, 12, 
1981 and he scored like 50 goals in the season. He was just, at that time, he was just a magnificent goal scorer. Still young. I think he was only 20, 21 at the time. Um, and, and he just, he, he was just on fire for Celtic. Um, very sort of glamorous lifestyle. The first sort of pin-up footballer that we had seen in our generation. You know, he was always getting pictured in the paper with with uh, with models and getting his picture taken, you know, the, the tops off and the big hairy chest and all that, and the two earrings and the ridiculous hats and all this, leather coats and that. So uh, it was just something we'd never seen before um, and, a, and a great player. And some of the goals he scored uh, in that season were incredible. Uh, ruined his career, of course, by, by making a bad move down to Arsenal when he should probably have gone to Liverpool, uh, who were interested in him at the time and slotted into a successful system there, but got sort of dragged in by the bright lights and the nightlife of London. Um, laterally, he's turned into a bit of a knob, I will admit. He, his takes on the media are just brutal, and I've got no time for him at all. Um, but, you know, but at that time in 1981, he was just a sensational footballer. I'll have to take your word for it, Stephen. Yeah, go look up some of the goals he scored. Um, apparently against Rangers, he got some crackers against them. Scored one in a, in a league, I think it was a League Cup final um, in 1981 or 82. Uh, it was absolutely pissing down with rain. And uh, Murdo McLeod and Charlie Nicholas scored and we won 2-1. And Nicholas's goal in that game was just an absolute cracker. So he had a chance going, go and look at some of his goal highlights. Um, so Because a really, really great player. We'll do. We'll have to check that out because, yeah. yeah. Didn't see him play like that season because that was the year I was born. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you off with that then. So the fifth, the fifth player in my team, and I can't let any top five team of Celtic players go without mentioning Tommy Burns. Um, the Tommy Burns for me was just everything about Celtic growing up. He was Mr. Celtic, you know, born within a within a stone's throw of Celtic Park. Um, stuck with the club through thick and thin. Went on to be a very good manager of the club. Um, who brought some really exciting brand of football to Celtic. And, um, you know, although, you know, in terms of technical ability, goal scored, maybe he wouldn't rank up there with the best of them. But just what he displayed in terms of passion for the club, how he wore the club, wore his heart on his sleeve as a Celtic player and a fan. He was quite open about the fact he was just a fan who got lucky and was able to play for the team that he loved. And, you know, even to this day, talking about Tommy and how we lost him far too young, um, it does bring a tear to my eye. Um, it, it was it was such a such a big part of the club growing up. You know, as I remember him, I remember sitting with my granddad watching the nineteen seventy seven Scottish Cup final. Um, and Tommy Burns was a he was a substitute or he was just a youth player at the time, part of the first team setup, and he had that really classic white uh, tracksuit on with with Celtic FC emblazoned on the back of it. You know, a lot of these retro sites are selling it now. Um, and he had this big flame of bright red hair and just a young kid, maybe 17 or something like that. And just to see him, you know, transition right through the right through the team, right through the years as a, as a top class player and, and then as a manager and never, never did anything to let the club down and always, always maintained his love of the club. It's fortunate enough to meet him on a few occasions and an absolutely wonderful guy as well. And a really sad loss for Celtic when we lost him. Yep, hundred percent. It's only one Tommy Burns. What a what a club legend. Yeah. All right. So next question for you. What are some of the most memorable games that you have seen Celtic play, and what is so memorable to you about those games? 
Okay, so so the first one, the first memorable game, as one I've mentioned already, was the, the European Cup quarter final against them um, Real Madrid in nineteen eighty. Um, incredible to think, you know, that was the last time that we reached that stage of the European Cup, as it was called then. Um, and, and you know, and we, we actually beat Real Madrid two 0 at home. Uh, goals from uh, George McCluskey and Johnny Doyle, and I just remember that the atmosphere was incredible. I was only a young kid, and my dad got his tickets and took it along. And then we just sort of stood down the front near the Celtic end, where the Celtic end was. And, you know, can't remember much about the game. Probably couldn't see much about it, you know, because you're right at the front. The, the view wasn't great from that end of the ground. But just the atmosphere, the lights, and, the, you know, the way the Celtic... Anybody who's been to a European night at Celtic Park will tell you, the way the Celtic, the green and white hoops looks against the lights um, just, just looks absolutely special. Um, Real Madrid that night wore an all-blue strip. Um, rumours were that it was just trying to get a bit of a rise out of Celtic but um, I don't know if that was an official awake or not they had a very famous England international playing for them at the time called Laurie Cunningham um, one of the sort of first English players to, to move overseas and play uh, but a great game and, and one that I, I remember really well remember it really fondly because I was there with my dad who's, who's sadly no longer with us um, so that would that, be the first sort of big Celtic game I, I, I remember the next one I want to talk about was the 1985 Scottish Cup final uh, when we played in the United. So that would be my first Cup final that I went to on my own on the supporters bus. And um, it was a memorable game in that it was the 100th Scottish Cup final that had been played. Um, and it was one of the one of the first sort of late, late shows that Celtic became really famous for in the latter years. We were a goal down to um, a player called, uh, called Stuart Beattie, I think the guy's name was. And um, late on in the game, we, we, we scored two goals, I think, in the last five minutes of the game. One was an excellent free kick from David Proven. Uh, and the next was a, was a cross-in from the right from Roy Aitken, who was absolutely magnificent that day, and a header from Frank McGarvey. And, um, we, and we took the cup home. Um, absolutely brilliant, really memorable. The next game uh, was a, a very famous game in Celtic's history, the 1986 game against St Mirren at Law Street, uh, where we... We went into the game three, you know, we with very little chance of beating Hearts to the title. They had to lose. All they needed was a draw away to Dundee. Uh, and we had to beat St. Mirren by three goals or more at home. Of course, we were four-nothing up at half time, but you know, it was a bit of a party time, but nobody really thought, you know, Hearts were gonna Hearts were gonna lose. But they upstepped uh, upstepped our hero, uh, the, the man we the man we love, uh, Albert Kidd. Um, to score two goals for the D, and we got another goal in the second half, and, and the rest was history. But what a, what a day that was! There's nothing better um, than to win a game like that when you when you or to win a league like that when you don't think you're going to. It's very un, very uh, unexpected, and the, the, the celebrations after that game were just just incredible. Um, so next up, uh, again a game against the D United in 1988, and another Scottish Cup final in our centenary season. Uh, and another late, late show. Um, this time we were a goal down to uh, Kevin Gallagher goal. Um, and we, 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 we come back to win the game again, literally the last five minutes with um, two goals from Frank McAvaney. Um, absolutely brilliant. Really hot day, really sunny. By that time I was 19, so I'm um, starting to dabble uh, with the old um, demon drink. So I remember having a, a bit of a tipple at a bottle of Buckfast before that game. Uh, we had a good mate of mine, me guy called Tam Guthrie. Um, we, we sat outside Hamden that day and got a little bit sparkled, but a really hot day uh, and a brilliant day 
and just to round off a, a magical season. Um, great seasons at the end of that game. So a bit of a gap then after that to my next game because obviously the 1990s was was a bit of a decade to a decade yeah. to forget. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll fast forward to the year 2000 uh, when we beat Rangers six two in uh, Martin O'Neill's first game against them. And again, what stands out about this game was we didn't really expect to win. To be honest, you know Martin O'Neill had just came out of the club, signed a lot of players. We'd lost the league by 25 points the year before to Dick Advocates Rangers. And, you know, everyone to a man would have accepted a draw. But we just came out and we blew them away. We were 3-0 up in 20 minutes. Um, and after that, it was just party time. Um, and rounded off by, you know, Henry Glasson's chip over close, which is a goal everyone will have as either their favourite Celtic goal or certainly up there. Um, and that was just a, just an incredible an incredible game and a game where we announced that we were back really and that we were we were going to dominate Rangers and what Chris Sutton said was absolutely true we're here to put them in their place and I don't think that many people could argue that from that year 2000 to this year uh, we haven't put them in their place we, we well and truly have um, so that and I think that was a game that really started it all that that last and goal Klaus wasn't a dummy as a keeper either that's my all time number two Goal. Mm-hmm. The only one above it was the invincible treble Rogic goal for me. That's it. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. because I'm Australian and I was at the CSC over here and yeah, a few other things, but that one, yeah, number two. Yeah. And probably the last game I'll, I'll mention is, is the UEFA Cup final against Porto in 2003. Um, so I was fortunate enough to get a ticket for the game and I went over there and it was a, it was an incredible trip. Loads of, loads of memories from the trip. We actually flew out to Seville the day before the game. We had booked a, we had booked a package through a, a travel company called Harry Hines Travel. Um, anybody who followed Celtic through that period will know who Harry Hines Travel were. They used to organise a lot of Celtic away trips. And we bought this travel package that was a, a night in a hotel on the outskirts of Seville, right? And, um, and then, you know, you go into Seville the next day for the game. But they get the, the flight, you know, there were so many people flying out of Glasgow that day. The flights all got delayed. So we ended up not getting into Spain till about seven, eight o'clock at night. And it turned out the outskirts of Seville actually meant 60 miles from Seville. Um, actually on the outskirts of a completely different city called Huelva, which is near the Portuguese border. So by the time we got at our hotel, there was really nothing much to do. It was a, in a really small town with nothing at all there, apart from having a few pints in a hotel bar. So we got up the next morning, jumped in a taxi. There was a bus there to take us to the game, but it was only it was only leaving at two in the afternoon or something like that. So myself and my brother uh, jumped into a taxi and just went straight into Seville about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I always remember driving into Seville. It was through like a, a sort of main, uh, sort of not a motorway, but a, quite a main road. And either side of the road and in the central reservation was just all Celtic fans waking up, basically after sleeping out there the whole night. And that was that. It was like a, it was like the opening scenes for the Lion King when all the animals are waking up. All you see was all these Celtic fans getting up and stretching to get ready for the day. So we got in there. Um, that was us round about the square in Seville where there all the rest of the fans that were there. Great day. You know, the game was very disappointing. Um, still still breaks my heart to think about it. I'm not one of those guys who say, oh, it was just great to be there. It, it was a heartbreaking loss. 
um, and, and, and a difficult one. I've never watched the game and I've heard a lot of people saying this. I've never watched it back again. I've seen the goals. I've never watched the full 90 minutes back again um, and I probably never will. Um, and it was just that disappointing and I think it would have just been what the team at that time deserved would be to lift a European trophy. Um, so after the game, there was a bus ready to take us all back to this wee hotel again, 60 miles from Seville, but we just went, ah, there's stuff that. So we just went back into the centre and got on the on the drink again. Um, ended up drinking till about four or five in the morning and catching the first train back to Huelva, which was the, the city near where we were staying. Got back to the hotel um, and I, unbeknown to us, there was a, a Glasgow underworld figure was also staying in a hotel and there'd been all sorts had happened the night before. So the hotel was surrounded by police cars. Somebody had threw a bed out of a window. It was like a scene from The Hangover. You know, <laughs> so there was a hotel, there was a, a bed floating around in the pool and there was all sorts of dramas had happened. So we, we basically just had a quick change and went back out again. We weren't flying home to Scotland until the next, till about 10 o'clock at night. So we got a taxi into the closest city, which was Huelva. Turned out to be a really nice little medieval city. Um, and found a nice pub out in a, uh, with an outdoor area and just sat there and sort of had a few more beers to round off the trip. But, you know, it's just an incredible trip um, and one that will live long in the memory. But the most disappointing aspect of it was that for my era, that was probably our Lisbon. You know, that was our chance to write ourselves into immortality and, and tell people in 30 years' time that, yeah, I was there, I was in Lisbon. But because we lost, you know, it sort of be, it sort of disappeared into the history books. But um, that's probably about the, the most memorable games I could think of. To be honest with you, I, I could talk all night about memorable games, but, you know, I'm sure you don't want to listen to me for too much longer. Yeah, okay. Part part one, part two, part three. We could have like you know a whole series of them, Stephen. Yeah. All right. Last question for you. Other than Messi and Ronaldo, always start with that. Who would be the one player that you have seen play during your lifetime and wish that they could have signed for Celtic? If money is no issue, no. So don't worry about transfer fees, wages, anything. If there was one player that you've seen in the past. And you, I'd give anything to see that guy play for Celtic. Who would it be? Well, when I was thinking about this one, the same name kept popping into my mind, and I wasn't going to use him because actually he did play for Celtic. But the the, the player I would have loved to have seen playing for Celtic was Roy Keane. Now, not the version of Roy Keane that we actually did see in a Celtic jersey, but the the the, the guy who at his pomp was was unquestionably the best midfielder in Europe. Uh, when he was playing for Man United, um, when he was taking empty winning the European Cup. So just an absolutely fantastic player. We we only saw a sort of half-broken version of Roy Keane um, at the tail end of his career when he, he had hip problems and, and, and we didn't see the best of him. But if we could have signed him at the at, at his peak, um, it would have been an incredible signing for Celtic. I mean, even even as an injured player, um, we still saw flashes of it, but but you know, not 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 really enough. Um, but that's if I if I could pick one player, it'd have been peak Roy Keane. Um, who'd I love I'd love to have seen him play for Celtic. Fair call. Can't complain with that. He was um on another level. I just remember those um him and Vieira battles that they used to have, and just seeing that, and you're like, imagine getting him in that midfield in an old firm. And yes, I can say that because that's what it would have been at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And him into one of them going. 
you know, boot to boot to shin on guys like Barry Ferguson and those sort of blokes. So, yes, please. He did, he did actually. We actually played an old fun game, um, which we won one nil at Ibrox um, with a goal from Magic Zarabski. Um and he, he absolutely dominated Barry Ferguson. He actually played against Barry Ferguson and Barry, the ball Barry never got a sniff. And uh, Roy Keane barely got a second gear. I think he cleaned out Ferguson with a tackle early doors and just sort of just laid down a marker, just said, "Look, this is my pitch. You're an invited guest. Behave yourself." Um, and that just gave us a, a little glimpse into you know what Roy Keane was capable of. And that was a that was a half broken Roy Keane. Um, it's just a just always remember that performance. Perfect. Well, Stephen, thanks for sharing your memories and. Everything on this Tim Talk episode, really appreciate it. It's been great to get to know a bit more about you and your journey as a Celtic fan. Everyone who's watching the episode, if you haven't done so already, please like the like the video, comment on the video, and then that'll help us in the YouTube algorithm. If you're on the podcast, make sure you download it, subscribe to the podcast app. Our social media channels are on the screen, Celtic Down on Twitter, Instagram. And then you got Facebook and YouTube done the Celtic Down Under. You can find us there. Look for the uh, Boxing Kangaroo logo. Um, yeah, just thanks again, Stephen. Really appreciate it. And uh, ho, ho. Here we go. Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over a hundred social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today. At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.